Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome back to the Payroll Podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, specialist global payroll recruiters. It's sunny outside. We've got some sunny payroll experts to guide you through some interesting topics as well. We have Rachel Giles join us for the first time as our resident panel expert covering all issues related to employment law from BWF. And she's going to talk to us about tribunal compensations, which may well result in us chatting a little bit about the P&O ferry situation, sackings and redundancies, which I know is hot news right now. But let's have a look at today's uh, discussion topics then. Uh, the first one is the end of COVID-19 emergency measures. We're going to be talking about the national minimum wage increase, tribunal compensation, and where we may, if we can, find time to talk about the P&O situation as well. Uh, pensions, auto enrolment and gender pay gap reporting. Well, let's jump in then to the, uh, to the to this topic. Um, I know the first part quite well because I had to fill in a travel locator form just yesterday. I came back from Spain and I believe that was the last possible day I had to do it. If I, had I flown back today, I wouldn't have had to. So mask okay. on the plane, mask in the airports. And I believe those restrictions have now been lifted. But let's um, perhaps start with you on these on this, uh, Rachel. End of COVID-19 emergency measures, end of travel restrictions. Uh, what does this mean? Well, end of travel restrictions. I don't know if any of you are based in the northwest, but I'm sure you saw on the news last night the two and a half hour queues at Manchester Airport to go through security. So I think that's probably the end of travel restriction impact. Um, In terms of business travel, which is something that that I've been thinking about for for clients, um, yes, it will have an impact. You know, people will be moving around more. I think there has been business travel domestically, internationally there hasn't been, but that's going to increase. But I think clients are are definitely thinking about the necessity of business travel now and that there's certainly been the move to trade shows, conferences, webinars all being held virtually. And I, I think that that's the way it, it will stay, um, you know. Clients are looking at bottom line. They're looking at the impact on the environment, and and they're really now thinking, can we just adopt platforms in order to remove the, the requirement for, for business travel? Yeah, excellent. Well, so it all came in, I think, pretty much from uh, from today. How does this impact yeah. uh, the, the payroll side of things? Then we talked a little bit from the poll there, Simon, but it's the end of SSP enhancements as well. Uh, what does this mean for payroll? Mm. Yeah, sure. So just so that we uh, people understand, for those of you that were uh, employers of under 250 employees, you did have the opportunity to reclaim up to two weeks worth of COVID-related absence and as SSP payments from the government. That ended last night. So mm-hmm. any uh, COVID-related absence from today, you can't reclaim. So you may have obligations still to pay the SSP, but you can't get it back from the government anymore. And it's a little bit harder than that in the fact that the uh, any reclaim has to be made by uh, the 24th of March at midnight. Uh, and that's when all of the emergency COVID legislation falls to one side. So that's that was its natural death anyway. So it all comes to an end. So the claim 
up to the 17th for payments of SSP that you're claiming back must be completed by the 24th. If not, you can't claim it, uh, even if it related to earlier absence. Now, I think there's a lot of discussion around, I think, Nick, I don't know if you're seeing it as well, of people saying, well, we wouldn't have paid that till the end of March anyway, so how can we claim that in time? And I think there's an element of, uh, with a little bit of uh, uh, jiggery-pokery and magic, you've got to make a claim by next week and as if you've paid it. So um, there's an element of you may have to think about it. Otherwise, you can't get back the two times £96.35. What about to reverse? Uh, the other Simon, sorry. What if you've found yeah. out that you've overclaimed? Um, is that something that, that ah. may happen? A way to reclaim? Just thinking I'm sure this is yes. something that might pop up. No, uh, overclaims may have occurred. And again, you need to make those corrections, HMRC would say, by the 24th. If not, if it's discovered you've overclaimed, you may find it then gets into a more serious position of, um, of uh, investigation or, or penalty. So there is an, an obligation on employers to get their SSP claims correct by the 24th. The other aspect that comes to an end, which is all part of that 24th of March date, is the fact that the emergency measures for COVID-19 absence was that you would qualify as long as you had a four-day period of incapacity for work, you would qualify for SSP from day one of the qualifying days, your normal working days. That ends from the 25th, it's day uh, four. So the first three days are again waiting days. Of course, unless you're linked to prior absences, which keep a linking going. But if it's a fresh absence, no absence, 56 days, new, and it's COVID-related, you wait three days before you're entitled to SSP. Just bringing it back to yourself, Rachel, and just a question that's popped into my head here, and it'd be interesting to know how this is managed. If uh, yeah. now that the restrictions have been lifted, not just in terms of travel, but in terms of being able yeah. to return to the workplace, regardless of uh, your COVID status to a certain degree, if you've got someone yeah. working in an office who um, is, is, is against the vaccination, hasn't been vaccinated, um, and wow. is continuing to work, and you've got someone who has COVID who is entitled to come into work, are there certain um, processes of obligations an employer has in terms of how that is potentially managed? Because there's a risk element there, I'm sure, which um, is going to cause some awkward conversations. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always the risk of grievances. And I think now the move is certainly to the burden of care being on the employer. Um, in terms of sort of an anti-vaxxer who potentially an employer may not want within the business and then there's somebody who is vaccinated and is potentially COVID positive coming into the business. It It's something that you need to have these discussions. HR need to be talking about these things now and just sort of have at least general policies in place about how you're going to deal with these issues if, you know, you've got the ability to to allow people to work from home then that's an option. It can be looked at. I think most employers won't want their colleagues to come into the office or the workplace if they're, they're COVID positive. I think um, a high profile case is a large retailer. I won't mention the name in case um, that yeah. they're, they're one of, of, of your clients, but um, they had to publicly apologise for 
basically saying, yeah, come into work, even if you're COVID positive, it's fine. So, you know, we've as employers, you've still got that duty of, of care to, to look after your colleagues. Um, it, it's a case by case basis. Uh, as an employment lawyer, I'm always going to be thinking about disability discrimination, um, protecting vulnerable colleagues. Um, so it, it's HR's job to, to really know everybody's circumstances and to, to just deal with them as individuals, really. Maybe maybe this is policy related, but is there any kind of legal obligation for someone who's COVID positive to disclose if they know they're positive to their employer? No, it's this personal responsibility strapline that that we're hearing. And um, it's completely up to the individual whether they want to disclose that. I mean, as an employer, you, you could seek to put a policy in place to ask people to tell you or you could try and put a testing regime in place, which I know a lot of employees will be doing. I think those in the sort of health and social care sector will still have testing regimes in place anyway. Um, but no. Yeah, I'm just thinking, uh, are our attitudes changing? I mean, I think I've had a light cold this week or a slight flu, but it, it's actually COVID. So I did yeah. test positive, but in the, uh, two or three, well, three or four years ago, if I'd have had a cold like this, would I have turned up to an office? And yeah. I think the answer is yes, I would have done, but mm-hmm. will I in future? Because it equally, it could have not been COVID because I've had similar things before and been tested positive, negative. Um, and I probably even felt worse, but, um, but on this one, it's fairly light, been triple jabbed, um, you know, uh, I don't even really know where I got it from. Two years of, you know, when we did have it in the house, I tested for 10 days, was negative completely a month and a half ago. But this time, no, it shows up. Obviously picked it up. Uh, you know, we're all interacting these days and, uh, you know, runny nose and a cough. Will we not we... go to work with a runny nose and a cough? I think that leads yeah. to probably a question for Rachel. Sorry, that, how do we then manage yeah. those? We are expecting guidance. Um, We hoped that we would have it by now. Um, It's new public health guidance that is going to replace the the guidance that's in place. um, And it will remove the COVID-19 risk assessment um, criteria. But we don't have it. So I think you standard absence policies and your standard disciplinary policies potentially um but it's um it, as ever it's health and safety and back to the employment contract yeah sure. yeah but so we're having an amazing day for questions coming in to warn you both andy simon well, uh, and simon pick on the payroll side maybe something here for you as well rachel to come through um so let's jump into the next section because some of these do relate to um, some of the areas we're going to be discussing, particularly in relation to salary sacrifice. You can see the, the, the bullet points there. Before we jump into this, let's just try and work through a couple of questions, and I'll try and pick and choose as we go to keep them relevant. Uh, the first one is this. Does anyone whose payroll, uh, who payrolls benefits just check each category to ensure they are covered for everything? You could do, and uh, and I guess that would relieve you of the, re- the obligations to P11D, 
the challenge is, is that what's needed for the circumstance of your individual employees. Now, the, the impact of registering is to remove any auto-coding that HMRC do. So, in effect, if they think oh, Simon's had medical insurance last year of £600, he's going to have medical insurance probably of £600 next year, so I'll code that into his tax code. If you register and tick medical insurance and you don't exclude individuals, it will remove that 60 adjustment from the tax coding. So I won't be taxed in the payroll uh, through my coding because it's assuming I'll be taxed on the fact that the benefit is declared as taxable income. Now, if you don't then payroll and I still get the £600 medical benefit, I'm going to get a bill for the tax at the end of the year. Do you see the thing? So there's an element of uh, putting your mind to it to think, what are you wanting to achieve? And the registration in reality is about informing HMRC elements that you want to be taken out of the tax code. However, it is the authority to payroll and P11D. And increasingly, we're seeing that the bulletins are telling us you must stop informal payrolling register. But as an idea, well, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. We've got a question come in from, uh, from Joe that says, someone at HMRC has told us to register a salary sacrifice scheme, brackets electric car, as a BIK via the payroll benefits portal. Is this correct, as we were under the impression that this was for benefits that will, will incur a tax charge in payroll rather than relief? Well, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, an electric car will incur a tax charge. So I think there's an understanding of what it is. So the salary sacrifice is in effect affecting a, it doesn't give a tax relief. It uh, reduces the amount of taxable income. So you're declaring a much lower earnings amount. But the electric cars are subject to a 1% company car tax charge now. And that applied from 6th of April 2021. And from 6th of April 2022, there is a 2% company car charge and the employer will owe class 1A. So, okay, okay, you could say that that's a reduced amount in relation to the reliefs, but they're not the same thing. So I can understand HMRC indicating that actually um, you need to register for the tax charge. However, are you P11Ding the benefit? And if you're P11D the benefit, then I'd say you don't have to register because you're not payrolling. All you're doing is applying a salary sacrifice arrangement. Yeah, that makes sense. And last one before we do jump into this. Thank you for the questions coming in, uh, everyone. Mm. This is amazing. There's more yeah. to get through, but I'm going to keep some of these relevant to the topics as we go through. Uh, so some of them, if, you have, if I don't ask them now, that's the reason why, but I will get to them. So last one for now. An employee has requested salary sacrifice for workplace nursery through Enjoy Benefits. I'm not convinced it is 100% HMRC compliant. What are your thoughts? Is it a workplace nursery? That's my initial thought. And if it's not, it won't work. So I think there's an element of looking at the approved workplace nursery criteria to see if it is a workplace nursery, because it might not be. Just because you call something something doesn't mean it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. That's a, a famous Simon Jordan. If you're those likes, listen to Simon Jordan says that quite That's regularly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Let's dive in then yeah, to the National Minimum Wage. Because I doubt it that that employer's workplace nursery at all. No, indeed. 
That's yeah. the challenge, isn't it? So national minimum wage increases, salary sacrifice, and some impacts here. Um, let's start with yourself, Simon. Just, let's give have a bit of an overview if we can, and then I'm sure some questions are going to follow, and then we can jump into the impacts on maternity in Alabaster. Yeah, sure. This, so this is a subject we've covered before, but let's cover it again. And that's uh, because it's only a short while away. But the end of, uh, was it the week after, two weeks today, uh, national insurance rates go up. Uh, and they go up quite significantly. So uh, 6.9% rise for national living wage is a significant rise. And uh, uh, so people will be getting their earnings rising uh, for certainly the lower paid, uh, closer to the limits on salary sacrifice schemes. So the fact that they've got a, I don't know, a pre-existing childcare voucher arrangement, which they've had since before 2018 when it ended, uh, but they carry on uh, of £50 a week. If that £50 now takes their pay below national minimum wage, the employer's in breach of minimum wage law and uh, could be in trouble. So there's what do you do about it? And because we're having these high minimum wage increases, this is increasingly hitting that barrier of breach uh, risk for employers as we get closer. So what do you do to take the bike off them? Do you stop the vouchers? Do you uh, take their eco car off them? There's all these things just got to be very careful of. And have you properly considered the salary sacrifice implications from uh, first pay period starting on or after 1st of April 2022? So that initial thought there. For, for some of the lower rates, it's much higher. So the 21 and 22-year-olds have had 11-point-something hike in their minimum wage because I think you're seeing that the direction of travel here is that the government are lowering the national living wage to the age of 21 eventually. And how have they yeah. done that? They've halved the gap. And so there's a significant rise for 21, 22-year-olds. Are they in that group? And that affects pension salary sacrifice as well, bringing in Andy here. So what are you going to do? Because you've contractually agreed a higher pension contribution as an employer and you won't have enough money to sacrifice. Let's pause there. What are the pension considerations then, Andy? Um, well, picking up, I'll, I'll finish off uh, Simon's point and Simon may, may add to that. Um, Yes, yeah, so if someone's on a salary sacrifice pension arrangement and now you've got national minimum wage increase, which as Simon says is quite a quite a chump sort of, sort of sixty p type thing, which means that if the salary sacrifice continues, you're reducing the individual below the national minimum wage, so you can't do that. Um, then you need to see what your scheme rules say, but the logical the norm would be that the salary sacrifice agreement has actually ended. Because logically, in your salary sacrifice agreement, you've got national minimum wage phrasing in there, or you've got somewhere of, of it. And anyway, that's, you need to look at that contract between the individual and the employer to see what it says. And I'm sure Rachel will have a view on this. And But from a practical point of view, what we're saying is that instead of salary sacrifice, the individual is now going to start paying normal contributions. So just do normal you know, the, whatever the contribution, say 5%, so 5% will be a pension contribution, which if it's net pay arrangement, will reduce the tax will pay, uh, but it will come off. It will not be a, a salary sacrifice arrangement anymore for those people. 
So that's that bit. I don't know if Rachel wants to add in before we I'll move on to perhaps more considerations on national language. No, not really. I think absolutely right. Look at look at the agreement, but practically, you know, individuals won't understand the complexities of this. So make sure you sit down with your colleagues, you talk to them, you explain why it has to be done. Um, just that line of communication, keep keep it open because people do rely on this childcare, for example. Um, so, yeah, make, make sure you, you get HR on board or line management on board to explain the implications. There is a question here, Andy, that's come in, actually, which you, you may be able to answer. It comes in from Susie. So thank you for the question, Susie. So can I just check how salary sacrifice pensions should be processed whilst on maternity? We enhance salary to 100 percent in the first six weeks and then 50 percent or full pay up to the six month mark. Right. So two several things here to think about. First of all, let's get the employee side of things. So because we ought to discuss salary sacrifice and non-salary sacrifice. So let's look at just want to make the picture clear for the non-salary sacrifice. So an individual in the pension scheme paying normal contributions, they go on maternity leave. During the maternity pay period, so up to 39 weeks when they're receiving SMP, then during that period, the individual will pay contributions based on what they're actually receiving. So that would be SMP plus any additional payments that they're receiving based on what the scheme rules determine is pensionable. The employer, though, will pay contributions based on the individual's pay that they would have had had they not been on maternity leave. So there'll be a calculation to, to determine what that, that person's normal pay is, and the employer will pay contributions based on that normal pay. So the individual pays on actual pay, the employer pays on what would have been paid had they not been on maternity leave for those 39 weeks, up to 39 weeks. So that's normal contribution. So salary sacrifice, of course, is where the individual has agreed to pay, to have a lower salary in exchange for an employer contribution. So another factor to bear in mind is that SMP cannot be salary sacrificed against. So SMP has to be paid in full. You cannot recover any salary sacrifice agreement so an amount from the SMP payment. So if you're, so if you look at the employers only paying SMP throughout the whole of that 39 weeks, then, and the individuals that are sacrificed group in place, then the employer will be paying the full amount. The normal employer contributions plus the salary sacrificed employer contribution based on the pay that the individual would have had had they not been on maternity leave. And the individual will not be contributing towards that because there's nothing for them to contribute from because SMP cannot be reduced to take account of salary sacrifice values. However, in this example, the employer is paying 100% to start with and then goes to 50%. So if the salary sacrifice agreement, the contractual agreement, includes these payments, the, the, the top-up payments, and those top-up payments are enough to meet the salary sacrifice amount, the pension amount, but also other salary sacrifice items, then then the employer can recover the can reduce those payments by the amount of salary sacrifice that's due, but obviously cannot go, cannot touch the amount of S and P that has to be paid. So that amount must be paid. So maybe only be recover part of that amount, 
So it's important to check what the contractual agreement is, what is in what is being paid in addition to SMP, can that be used to offset the salary sacrifice amount due for pension and other other salary sacrifice items. Um, then then you can go ahead and process your payroll. But remember it's based on the pay the individual would have had then not being on return to leave. Well, I think that's all goes my next yeah. And alabaster just adds to that, doesn't it? Because if individual, <laughs> so the, an alabaster may impact a national minimum wage increase because the national minimum wage is going up. Someone's on maternity leave at the moment. Alabaster may now be increasing their pay, in which case you're going to have to recalculate maternity pay and therefore all the, all the knock-on effects such as um, the salary sacrifice, employer contribution and everything else. So, so it has alabaster has um, has has great fun for payroll attached to it. <laughs> um, Simon, or do you want to add or Rachel anything to what I've just said? Well, I can talk about a little bit more about alabaster, but I think you, uh, Andy, that's an excellent uh, response there. I think Nick, and it is complicated. Yeah. In effect, you ca- you can't salary sacrifice SMP. It's a state payment. Uh, sometimes we think, well. We're paying some of it, so it's not a state payment. No, it's a state payment. It might be part funded by an employer. It's still a state payment. SSP is actually a state payment. The employer might be funding 100% of it. makes no difference. It's still a state payment. So uh, you can't salary sacrifice a state payment, and, and I think that's the important aspect. And then, therefore, you can't move it forward. There are other implications maybe that Rachel might comment is try, sometimes trying to fix these things inadvertently brings the employer into a case of discrimination. Uh-huh. So sometimes you try and uh, coerce an employee to stop their pension contribution during maternity because, of course, you won't have enough money to sacrifice. There's an element yeah. of they don't need to. Uh, and so just be careful because that's probably, um, I, I can't even say indirect discrimination. That's probably direct discrimination. Yeah, I probably, probably think, Rachel, any thoughts? Probably that would be. Uh, potentially direct discrimination and I think just practical employment law advice whenever there's an issue in terms of of alabaster or SMP if you you know you do receive payroll queries again just try and flag them to to HR if you've got an employee relations team or um, anyone within HR because often small payroll queries can lead to bigger discrimination claims um so if you're not working together then it may end up in the tribunal as not only a pay claim we've also got a huge discrimination claim as well so just a a practical advice for for you uh payroll practitioners yeah practical advice very welcome and the other aspect of alabaster nick is of course People think because the rise is the 1st of April, it only applies for SMP from the 1st of April, and it doesn't. Under the alabaster ruling, it goes back to the beginning of anybody that's on maternity leave on the 1st of April to the beginning of when the calculation. So you may owe SMP top up for past periods before the 1st of April. So it's a pay rise. Any pay rise that occurs between the eight weeks before the 15-week qualifying date through to the end of the additional maternity leave period 
anyone that's been on maternity leave, if that 1st of April date falls in that, there is a recalculation requirement for the whole period. And, uh, and sometimes we find people um, finding that really confusing. Well, a couple of questions. I think people still are seeking just a little bit of final clarification. So let me just sum up these two quick questions, and I hopefully we can uh, give everyone the confidence they need to move forward with this. So one uh, says, can I clarify about sacrificing out uh, of statutory pay? Is this the count count for the full 39 weeks, or can they sacrifice out of the first six weeks of higher-rate SMP? No, because it's still a statutory payment. You can't sacrifice any of it. And that then relates to the second part, which is based on an employee having salary sacrifice pension going on maternity leave. You're essentially saying the employer is responsible for paying the employee's pension contributions up to 39 weeks. Well, no, I understand what you're saying, but there is no employee contribution. I think we need to be clear on that. When you enter a salary sacrifice agreement, the employee actually contributes nothing ever. What they've done is to agree to a pay cut. That pay cut is already reflected in their average earnings for SMP. I'm not saying that pays for it because it doesn't, but it's already reflected. What we're saying is you can't take a pay cut of a a statutory payment, but the opposite or, or no, the associated aspect of taking that pay cut is the employer has made a contractual promise to the individual. That contractual promise is to pay enhanced employer contributions. So I think we need to be clear, when an employee is part of a salary sacrifice arrangement, there is no employee contribution. They're contributing nothing. So if you may have a 5% sacrifice, that 5% isn't an employer, isn't an employee pension contribution, it's a 5% pay cut, then the employer might be enhancing the employer contribution by a 5% contribution. But uh, just want to clarify that. So with Sarah Sacrifice, the employee is buying nothing. The employer is giving. Even with a bike, you're not buying a bike, you're not buying childcare vouchers, because if you are buying childcare vouchers, there is no tax relief. It has to be given by the employer. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Being payroll yeah. question time as it is, I'm going to, there's a few questions yeah. that don't necessarily sit in any of the uh, topics, but obviously people want some answers. Um, they've come to the, to the webinar to join. So I'm going to run through some of these before we join into our next topic because that's going to get into a little bit deep into the P&O oh, situation beyond. Nick, before you do the questions, can I just add a couple of things of on the... Are we going to move off national minimum wage after this? Or are we going to continue? Well, how about we f- finalise national wage here? So uh, if you jump in, Andy, then I'll go through some of these questions before we go into the next two, topic. Two, two points then. One is on the on the on the whole 
pension contribution during someone on maternity leave, remember to check the scheme rules because the pension scheme may have a greater recruitment.com um, to find out more than, than the statutory minimum. So, you know, it could it could be you just need to make sure that the pension scheme rules aren't requiring more than what than what you might be expecting. So just check the scheme rules because people went on maternity leave. Um, the other thing is national wage increase means that there's going to be people who are going to be paid more in April than there were previously. And it's possible that they'll now trigger for the first time automatic enrollment. So you may have a little blip of people yeah. being automatic enrolled in April and they may, of course, choose to opt out. So there may be an additional bit of extra work for payroll people in April because of the national wage increase. That's me done on national no, that makes wage. Sense. I'm glad you I'm glad you jumped in. Excellent. So a quick question um for you here, Simon. Um relates to national insurance contribution increases. What is the opinion on the HMRC request to put a payslip message on every month? <laughs> um yes. Do you want me to give you a personal opinion or uh the HMRC are asking everyone and um I'll use my uh irony here a little bit, pretty, pretty please. Would you put a message on the payslip for the 2022-23 tax year? There's no mandation to do it. It's not a requirement of law. Um, and uh, the, the reason it's sometimes questioned is because um, the health and social care levy uh, does fund health and social care in England. Uh, that money will be allocated to the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly and Northern Ireland Assembly as well. But what they do with it is up to them. So is that going to actually fund health and social care in those nations? Because actually the health and social care levy 1.25 percentage point amount is funding health and social care in England. So does that kind of give a view? So some will say it's a political message. Others will say, oh, just get on with it and do it. All I can say is you want to do it. The capability is there to do it. The next bit, which may be more relevant for this, potentially for the spring uh, statement section we've got coming up, but I know this is a hot topic at the moment as well with where we are. So the question I've come in is this. With fuel increases going up so much, are the fuel advisory rates likely to change, even though they haven't changed for over 10 years? Um, I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this. I do know that I read an article on, I think it was the Daily Mail that published it, which said that uh, it was by This Is Money, well, they said that prices would have to increase to about £3.50 per litre for car mileage allowances to go into the red. Um, I'll put a link to that article if anyone's interested in it. But uh, be interested to know your thoughts on uh, the fuel increases going up. Will that be adjusted as a result? Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it, Nick? I mean, it would be nice. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't know how you operate your cars, but I've, I've, got, I've got an electric car. <laughs> Well, hybrid, as, as we've talked about okay. before, yeah. Nick, I think you have as well these days. So, um, you know, not not the best. It's Mercedes. Um, but uh, but it's, it's good for me and I like it. And uh, I've got to say, over the years, my mileage rates in vehicles I've had has increased and increased. So I get more miles to the gallon in the cars I've had over the past five years than I did over the previous 15 years. Uh, but the rates stayed the same. So actually... Have I profited from that 45p for the first 10,000 miles and 25p thereafter? And I'd probably say over the years, it's actually bought the cars. Uh, if you want to know how, I've probably got formulas and Excel spreadsheets that will show how. 
but it's kind of self-funded itself in many ways because I was doing between 14 and 20,000 business miles a year, um, uh, amongst other things as well. Um, don't know. I, I think, is it people saying it's getting to a point that the 45p doesn't cover the insurance, etc.? Because I'm probably feeling it does, and that's probably the view the HMRC will have, is that it's not hit that crunch point. So you comment about the £3-odd uh, a litre is possibly true. It was quite generous. It used to, it started out as 40p, didn't it? And then yeah. it jumped to 45, and it stayed there ever since. So uh, HMRC may have taken the view that it was actually too generous. Could be okay. a good government win, though, potentially in a statement yeah. for those that are feeling yes. the pinch, um, which is interesting yeah. to see if that might come out. Um, Roger's actually posted a comment here to say, I doubt fuel rates will increase, in my opinion, because look at the tax fee redundancy at 30k. When was that ever increased? <laughs> uh, there you go. It probably links nicely yeah. into our next section, to be honest. We'll jump into that in just a moment, but we'll, we'll keep the, the, uh, the slide in front of us. We're going to talk about tribunal compensation in just a second. Um, Last question here. Are you aware of what happens to the apprenticeship levy when we do not use the money? How is it being spent? <laughs> yeah, um, the government will say thank you. <laughs> in effect. So. So, yes, it is a levy. Um, so, sometimes there's an eventually I think is I'm saying this from memory. So forgive me a little. I think after a period of two years, you lose access to any allocated money that you have available to you. At that point, then, I think it will go into the general apprenticeship funding sort of arena because you actually get a 10% top-up. But there are different funding arrangements across the devolved governments as well. So there is a share that's going to the Scottish Parliament, Northern Ireland Assembly, and the Welsh Assembly, which funds their apprenticeship funding. So that's not controlled by you that's controlled by them so you may find it spent on institutions or schemes or various things like that but uh, in effect will go into the public purse for spending on apprenticeships Right, and an interesting comment here, just linking back to our last subject of uh, COVID-19 emergency measures from Gemma Liff, who says, it's not a question, but I did want to share with the audience today that we've created a new permitted leave reason for isolating for those positive employees uh, who are asking to isolate in order to protect their colleagues. This neither uses holiday or six entitlement, and they are fully paid. We might like that one, Rachel, uh, just to read that one out. And um, I know we had that complex question uh, which I know we could leave it till a bit later but I'm keen to give Jonathan a response. Uh, the question initially earlier on today was can you confirm that outbound expats should be included in the gender pay gap uh, reporting? Now um, Ashley Dorman for those that know him I know him very well has come in with a, an excellent response I'm going to read out to you all so we can move on from this area and obviously maybe we can comment on again when we get to that section uh, but he says I know the answer to the gender pay gap question for expats posed earlier. An employer that is based in Great Britain who sends employees, uh, employees abroad to work may find that some or all of these employees will need to be counted, counted for the gender pay reporting regulations. Similarly, a multinational organisation that has employees working wholly or partly in Great Britain may also find that some or all of these employees will need to be counted for the gender pay reporting regulations. As a general rule, an employee working overseas will be within the scope of the regulations if they can bring a claim to an employment tribunal under the Equality Act 2010. This will depend on whether the employment relationship suggests a stronger connection to Great Britain and British employment law than to the law of any other country. So hopefully that 
exactly is that section up a little bit. Uh, let's jump into the next section then. Um, I'm going to pass this over to Rachel to begin with. I know we're going to talk about Employment Tribunal award limits and changes in compensations, but I wondered if possible, if we could just start a little bit with uh, the situation that's currently surrounding the P&O sackings and redundancies from yesterday, if there's any information that, um, I guess, that's come to light that you may be able to uh, impart. Well, I mean, firstly, just to say that as an employment lawyer, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked when I, I heard the news last night. Um, 800 employees, no consultation, um, shocking. And that, that's without hearing about the buses full of security guards that were then going to go on to take the employees off who had just been told via teams that they were dismissed with immediate effect. Um, in, in terms of employment law, well, yeah, unfair dismissals, um, protective award, consultation should have lasted up to 45 days because of the amount of colleagues that were affected. Um, but they've done this for a reason that they, they won't have done it without advice. They've probably calculated their liabilities and decided that I was going <laughs> to, I was, I was going to mention what? a terrible pun there about sinking, but I, I, I won't. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they will have just decided that better to do it this way and to bring in the agency staff to keep the business afloat um yeah it, it's surprising and i think a lot of claimant lawyers will probably benefit from this because there will be a lot of unfair dismissal claims in the employment tribunal however it's going to take them a while to get what they deserve um we had a quick chat prior to this call and i understand that a lot of the employees will have been offered settlement agreements um so that might be a way to, to sort of finalise it for them um, and get the money that, that they're owed. You know, there will be people with, with lengthy careers within the business who quite rightly deserve their, their redundancy payment and any additional redundancy payments that they're entitled to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, allegedly, and this is just a report I've heard from an HR professional, it basically states that uh, they ran the calculations and decided it's cheaper to take any tribunal or court hit than it is to hold negotiations and risk strikes. Um, that's really sad isn't it you know um a personal view it of mine obviously um i don't have a but it it is really sad and it makes a mockery of of tribunals and employment law legislation let's just hope this isn't the sort of the move of industrial relations going forward I, i certainly hope not Worth there also clarifying for those that have um, fully up to speed with this, because there was a tweet that was posted today by uh, P&O Cruisers, because this relates to P&O Ferries, of course. Um, P&O Cruisers put out a tweet earlier today to say, would like to be absolutely clear that P&O Cruisers is part of Carnival Corporation and PLC, and as such is entirely unrelated in any way to P&O Ferries, which is owned by DP World. Um, because we of- often just talk as P&O on its own without that second part of the of the company name and it's probably worth just clarifying the two changes there for those who are not familiar um well moving on to employment tribunals i'm sure there'll be some that come out the back of this um yeah. maybe you can talk us through a little bit um rachel about the employment tribunal award limit changes yeah so the changes will take effect from the 6th of april um 
that's the date that any dismissal, any termination would have to take effect from the 6th of April for the new awards to apply. That's the same with calculating your statutory redundancy payments as well. So the maximum on a week's pay will go up from the current figure of £544,571. The maximum compensatory award for unfair dismissal will go up from 89,493 to 93,878. And the minimum basic award for unfair dismissals, which includes health and safety dismissals, goes up from 6,634 to 6,959. That is to say that the limits you need to take into account that it's limited to 52 weeks pay if that's lower than the maximum compensatory award. Um, going back to P&O, you know, the, the liability is, is massive for, for yeah. them. Um, in terms of calculating your redundancy pay for any redundancies that you might be working out within the next couple of weeks, just bear in mind that any termination post the 6th of April, you will be based on the new calculation. But practical advice from me, any consultations that you're currently going through and figures have already been calculated and sent to colleagues, double check that those figures are right if the termination is happening over the 6th of April, because clients do get caught by that. Yeah, and that's a good point. Yeah, that's it. The, the Vento Award for Personal Injury Damages um, normally changes at this point, there, have, there hasn't been any announcement on the changes, so it seems that, that they will be the same as last year, unless uh, I hear otherwise, but I take, take it that they'll remain the same levels. There's a question that's come in that relates to that redundancy payment, um, and this is a question for yourself, Rachel, yourself, Simon, but it says, if an employee has an outstanding overpayment and they're being made redundant, can you legally recover the net amount when you process that redundancy payment? Well, I'm, I'm going to suggest it depends on the contractual terms yeah. uh, of employment. So do you have a clause within your contract that allows you to recover over payments? If you don't, then I'll, I'm going to hazard a guess here and say no. But if you do, possibly. Yeah, I think it would be very good drafting to have a clause that would refer specifically to, to redundancy payments. I think as a general rule, you would say no, um, but check, check your employment contract. That's yeah. right. But as a, as a general principle, uh, an, an overpayment is recoverable from an individual. I yeah. guess the, ch- the challenge here is uh, indicating that you don't want to pay it first to then try and recover it. Uh, you may have to, I think, is uh, what the suggestion is here, unless you've got a very tight contract which allows you to. But uh, you do have a right to recover. It's just you then going through other legal processes to recover it. Uh, From an HMRC angle, uh, although HMRC may tell you otherwise, um, legally, if it's an overpayment, it's not earnings. So you can immediately recover tax and national insurance on that amount on the principle that you do intend to recover at some point. Uh, and if you have to write it off as your failure to recover, that doesn't always make it taxable. But if you don't intend to recover, it is earnings. And so the overpayment is subject to tax and national insurance. 
Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, observation to make. Well, the question here, I'm going to keep it in this section. It's not related to tribunals uh, necessarily, unless you would take a, a claim against it if you're unhappy with the result. But the question here is it's a few in one, really. And it relates to unused holiday pay. Um, if we have an employee who has unused annual leave left over, but has been told they cannot carry it into the new year uh, and that they lose any unused leave um, as a result, um, I'm under on the understanding that the government said you can carry leave up to two years after COVID. Is this incorrect? And if employees are entitled to 5.6 weeks a year, does the employer have an obligation to make them take it? Well, I can give a couple of views there, uh, Nick. Uh, I guess holidays are sort of one of my specialisms. And uh, but because it is, you'll usually get the um, uh, yes, no and maybe and it depends type response. And I think their famous lines, a little bit of John as well, I probably suggest Rachel at times is it depends. But uh, actually payment in lieu of holiday is unlawful unless they're <laughs> leaving. But yeah. there is this perception of you lose it. Um, you can carry over for two years due to COVID reasons, holiday entitlements, which would previously under the uh, regulations be unlawful because you couldn't carry forward the EU four weeks. You could only carry forward the UK 1.6 weeks. But the emergency laws allow you to carry forward two years. But I don't think that's starting to relate to current holidays because we're coming out of the pandemic. So be careful there. Um, but uh, but an employer doesn't have to agree to it. So uh, it's not a right. Um, it's an option if the employee and employer agree to it. Uh, otherwise, you may have had employers that during furlough had to pay 100% pay. So there may be reasons why an employer would want to allow it. Otherwise, they'd have had to pay those employees 5.6 weeks of 100% of their pay due under the uh, regulations for holiday pay, and they may not have been able to afford it. So it's looking at the reasons why you're carrying forward and, and what. But uh, is there an obligation on employer to ensure that individuals take their holiday? Uh, Rachel may have some comments there, but I think principally, no, it's not their obligation to, to ensure but it is an employer's obligation to ensure that they have the opportunity to take their holiday. And there may be other comments and views there, but you can't say you can't take holiday when it's due. You have to give them the ability to take the holiday. Any yeah, thoughts, Rachel? The, I mean, not, not much more to add that, you know, that you will have your own holiday policies to follow. Um, it's been a strange few years in terms of holiday people working when they would have taken their two weeks in the sun and they didn't. You know, let's deal with people case by case. Good communication. Why haven't people taken their holiday and reasonable reasonableness? As, as a question, and I'm, and this is coming to my mind, it's not, not a, a question from the, from the audience, uh, Simon, but something that popped into my head when you mentioned your sure. initial response. If I'm, if I haven't taken my full entitlement, I've reached the end of the year and the employer says, um, you know, even if they allow me to carry it over, but I say actually I'd rather take a payment in lieu of that, but I'm requesting it, it hasn't been requested by the employer, um, rather than me carry it over and take more holiday the following year. Would that be breaking the law in doing so if that request comes from the employee? Yeah. It's unlawful. Yeah, you can't, you can't do it. I mean, what most people would do is say, just carry it over and take it within the first quarter. Um, yeah. That tends to be the, the main 
advice that I, that I'd give. Um, yeah, you, no, you can't do it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what people do in arrangements of bonuses and things like that, but potentially the employers opening themselves up to being pursued for not uh, complying with the working time regulations and allowing people to take the 5.6 weeks rest. I think what the law is trying to do is enforce that people have rest. Yeah, I guess COVID's been, yeah, COVID's been different, I guess, because we've all been at home. Uh, and some of us have been twiddling our thumbs, not any of us as prof- payroll professionals, because I think everybody here that's a payroll professional that's dealt with COVID has probably worked twice the amount of time they would normally. Absolutely. Uh, and and so actually you could probably do with a 5.6 weeks break, but probably don't <laughs> yeah. have the time to take it. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's, you know, Sometimes it can be viewed that we've had a bit of a jolly for the past two years. In the payroll professional, we've gone grey and lost our hair, haven't <laughs> we? It's been a real struggle and uh, sometimes exciting and taking our minds off certain distractions, but uh, sometimes driven us all a bit potty. Yeah, I mean, those brown, long, curly locks you had, Simon, when we started this PQT series many months ago have uh, well and truly gone. <laughs> Uh, well, that's right. Well, blondes are flowing, uh, of course. You know. a, a good question's come in here from Joanne Chetwood. How does the stringer ruling affect the carry forward holiday when someone has been on long term sick? Well, and, um, and generally, I think there's a couple of principles where holiday does carry forward. So uh, the principles where holiday does carry forward automatically generally or is agreeable to at least is maternity and sickness so the fact that you couldn't take holiday because you were sick or on maternity leave it carries forward so the four-week restriction that you can't carry that forward under normal eu or regulation 13 holiday doesn't apply but i think there's an element of uh because I'm saying this from memory, and Rachel may have a view as well, and sometimes this is where we have our disclaimer at the beginning, and it's good to seek professional advice, is that some elements of that are by agreement. So even if you look at the ACAS guidance, it will say you can do it. It doesn't always say you have a right to do it. Let's um, let's move it over then to pensions auto enrolment. I'm going to get you back involved here a little bit, Andy. Before we jump into this, it's just a quick commentary piece from Ian Davis. It says the focus for HMRC for mileage rates should be the advisory rates, which cover the fuel costs only. The 45 pence a mile for using personal vehicles has always and continues to be more uh, to to be more to cover the fuel costs, insurance, maintenance, etc. So I just mentioned what we have. I think good comment there. Yeah, I think spot on. In, uh, there's an element of what will the business for company car rates change to shortly. Uh, now we have this three month review and I guess there is some challenge of should HMRC wait for these three month reviews or because they're so, um, exponentially growing at the moment, should they be more frequent to allow? Otherwise, um, you get that point where it's expensive for someone to travel in their company car. Because the employer not funding it, the person is. That's probably how they feel a bit. Sure, sure. Let's jump into pensions auto enrolment. Um, freezing of thresholds. Uh, Andy, take the floor if you would. I will indeed, yeah. So hopefully everyone knows that the AE's thresholds, the lower threshold, the trigger and the upper threshold are frozen. So there's no change 
for 22-23. They're just going to continue with the 21-22 thresholds. Normally, you may have noticed um, that Department for Work and Pensions who set these uh, thresholds, they've been sort of, the low and up have been mirroring the LEL and UEL for national insurance. And this is the first time for many years that they've disconnected that. So because the, the low earnings limit went up for national insurance, um, you'll know from April and, and, but the A threshold, low A threshold has not. So, um, and I think in part because, um, the intention probably around 24, 25, 25, 26, maybe later. Anyway, sometime in the mid 2020s, the intention is that, um, the lower threshold will go to zero, will be, to zero will be abolished. Um, so therefore, if you keep increasing the lower threshold in line with national insurance at some point, um, we're going to, you're just going to, the, the, the change when it goes to zero is going to be much bigger impact on employers. So it'd be interesting to see what happens for the April 23, uh, thresholds. I don't know. There's time for DWP to decide, um, to see if it continues to be frozen or maybe reduces or, or, or I don't know. See what happens. Um, but they are frozen. So the, in other words, 21, 22 AE related thresholds continue throughout the whole of 22, 23 tax year. The, um, I just mentioned the mid twenties changes. Um, the other intention, um, is that the AE age threshold at which an individual can be automatically enrolled as long as their earnings are enough as well at the moment is 22, um, around about mid twenties. 24, 25, 25, 26, wherever it is, and the attention has moved that, um, that age down from 22 to 18. So whenever that happens, the lower threshold becomes zero and the age drops to 18, will be from an April, most logically, then that particular payroll run, you're going to have quite a few more people being automatically enrolled and all of a sudden the employer contribution will be, will be a lot more, um, subject to what happens in these intervening years for the lower threshold. The other thing to mention is that um, you may even have added to the consultation. HMT Treasury did a consultation about this. This anomaly we have are non-taxpayers, so individuals who are not paying tax. If they're in a relief at source scheme, so that's the tax method, tax relief method used for that pension scheme, such as NEST, for instance, our group personal pension schemes, they have relief at source tax relief method. That means that basic rate tax relief is automatically given to those people. Even though they're non-taxpayers, they they actually benefit from tax relief. So the if they're paying 5%, if that's the scheme rules, 5% is minimum, basic rate tax relief would reduce that 5% down to 4%. So an individual in the relief of source scheme actually has deducted from their net pay 4%. That is their pension contribution, gets paid over to the pension provider. Pension provider then claims the, the missing 1%, the basic rate relief from the HMRC and that gets paid into the pension pot for that individual. So in total, 5% is in their scheme. So the individual has benefited. They've only paid 4%. But for those in net pay arrangement schemes, then the, the full 5% is deducted and they would get tax relief through the payroll system because they're not paying tax. So there's no tax to give them relief on. So they will end up paying the full 5% without any tax relief. So to avoid this anomaly, just to stop this happening, the government looked into it, Treasury have agreed, and the process is that HMRC will calculate 
what the missing tax relief is, that, 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 the, the fact that they've actually paid, they've had less net pay. So that missing amount of net pay will be paid to them only in, in the 25-26 tax year. So the first year they'll do the calculations is 24-25 tax year. They'll work out how much of non-tax relief that individual didn't get or tax relief they didn't get. And then that amount, I don't know, maybe 10 quid, maybe more, 100 pounds, whatever it might be, um, will be paid to that individual. And it will be done through HMRC. And it's taking, it's going to take a bit of time to get all those, that process in place, hence 24, 25. Um, so that's really good because it means that it doesn't matter what tax pension scheme and what tax relief is being used for non-taxpayers, they'll be treated equally. So it's really good. And the nice thing is it doesn't impact payroll, which is even better. That's, that essentially is that mid-2020s proposal. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so let me yes, explain. Yes, it's one of the many. Yeah, yeah. Is to do that. Yeah. There was Richard Holden MP put forward a private members bill, um, but the government it's just going to run out of time, so it's not going to actually happen because he was proposing to do the same things, reduce the thresholds. And I think he was even talking about taking the trigger out so that everyone got enrolled without having their threshold from which to enroll. Um, but that's all not going to happen, and we just wait for Department for Work and Pensions. There'll be plenty of advance notice, so it's not going to just happen um, without any advance notice. So payroll systems will be tweaked accordingly, and individuals be aware in terms of payroll users will know what to do when it comes to that particular tax year in which these things happen. Sure. Actually, I've just had the one question come in uh, in relation to pensions. Perhaps this is more relevant for the as well for the salary sacrifice section. But it said for salary sacrifice pensions. Do we need to show the full salary on the top line of the pay slip with the employee pensions deduction under salary sacrifice on a separate line? Is there any specific guidance available on this? Well, it, I mean, I can, I do know back many years of payroll you used to not, you used to have to put the, the, the lower amount on your pay slip, otherwise you were non-compliant. <laughs> but HMRC have relaxed that, haven't they, Simon? So now you can put the full amount yes. under the salary sacrifice value as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think it really the, comes the pay slip. you should think about whether you want to have notional pensionable pay on your payroll system so that you can get the system to calculate the employer contribution rather than having to do a manual calculation every period. So, or, or you, know, you know, just to do it. So just think in terms of the practical aspects from maternity leave, salary sacrifice or non-salary sacrifice employer contributions. Just think. How you get the system to automate that for you to save you having to do lots of manual calculations. Sure. Any additional commentary for yourself, Simon, in this section? Yeah, only payslip pay law is actually very loose, so it doesn't actually require a lot. Um, uh, one of the areas where we have forgotten, and I'm seeing people, is are required to put the uh, various worked on a payslip. That is a legal requirement. And I think that got confused even during COVID between furlough and non-furlough because it's working hours that are meant to be put on there unless it's only the contract. But on pensions, making the comment, uh, whatever's useful is great. What legal requirement is there on a pay statement? Very little. We've had a, so it's obviously, a uh, yes, obviously motivated a few additional questions to come in. So we're going to jump into the next session in just a moment. But last question while we're here. Yeah. If we have to remove an employee from salary sacrifice due to the new national minimum wage rates, is it the employee's responsibility to track when they could rejoin salary sacrifice or the employer's? The, there's no responsibility on either, to be honest. So it's... Okay. Um, 
It's uh, whatever your scheme wishes to do. So there's no legal requirement to do anything. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, let's jump go in. Go along then. with that, I think, Rachel, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. There's no formal requirement on either side. Right. Can I just add one thing, Nick, yeah, on, yeah, the, on the payslip front? Really love employers to put the employer pension contribution on the payslip. I think it's very handy for employees to know how much the employer is paying. I think it's a real benefit. There's yeah. not a requirement, yeah. as Simon says, the legislation, you know, you know, even what format a payslip is isn't directed. Um, but the but it's really useful if you can so that employees can see the value of the employer's contribution. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As a, as a recruiter looking at this space, attrition and retention, all those things, you know, more information you can get to keep the employee happy and you can do it. Why not do it? And uh, fully in agreement with my side as well. I'll start with you. You can lead us into uh, the 4th of April deadline so people are aware of what they need to do. Yeah. So, um, uh, and we kind of had a bit of a holiday during uh, COVID, although last year uh, we had to do these reports, but uh but I'm not sure if everybody did them, to be honest, or looking at some of the reports, how accurate they were, because I, I find it interesting when an employer reports that actually there is gender equality in all employment, uh, thinking that's virtually impossible uh, on a gender pay gap report. Uh, you could find it be close, but to be exactly zero difference um, uh, looks like they've not understood the question. Uh and, and not perform the calculations. However, all you've got to do is upload the result of the whole lot. But it looks to me when they say, no, zero on everything, we're equal, uh, that they've not actually performed any calculation. It's just a personal view. Uh, so, yes, uh, public sector, um, your snapshot was 31st of March 2021. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Private sector, the snapshot was the 5th of April 2021. You need to get your reports in across the next two weeks. Yeah, so um, get your snapshot data from last year. Do your calculations. Get your board to analyse it. I don't know. Is this more your thing? You tell us a bit more about uh, gender pay gap report, Rachel. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely correct. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you will be feeling a bit weary, given that it was October was the deadline because it was extended last year. So you will have done all this work not that long ago. And um, I do understand that this can be quite a, a, a task for payroll. Um, the, there are a number of criteria I won't go into on what you have to to report on. Um, I think a practical piece of advice is if somebody within your organization submitted the detail last time then you do have to have another account opened in order to do it again this time um and i guess when you are collecting your data and you're trying to get board sign off just i'll say it as a woman bear in mind the reason that you know the, the policy w was brought in and I do understand that there is data that shows that from those that are that have to report, the gap has closed by a fifth for those organisations. Um, and just going back to sort of your arena, Nick, in, in a candidate driven market, I think email employees who show an aversion to, to employers that have 
a high gap, well, it, it's it's not going to do their sort of engagement and retention. Absolutely right. Many favours to have uh, a, a big gap. That that would be my view on it. Um, just make sure you do it in time. Thirtieth public sector and fourth for everyone else. It doesn't specifically relate to the gender pay gap necessarily, but after International Women's Day, which we recently celebrated, there were some interesting statistics released by by the government and some of the research they've done that said, that said that in relation to leadership roles here in the UK, we now have climbed to second in the international rankings for women's representation on boards at FTSE 100 level, uh, with new data showing 40% of UK FTSE 100 board positions are now held by women, compared to just 12.5% 10 years ago. Um, major sea change, I think, really in terms of attitudes to getting women leaders to the top table of business in the UK. And actually, not just the FTSE 100, which is 39.1%, but FTSE 250 is now 36.8%. FTSE 350 at 37.6%. So that's all positive, positive um, stats coming out. Obviously, a long way to go. But interestingly, while there's been lots of progress made at boardroom level, only one in three leadership roles and around 25% of all executive committee roles are held by women. So progress yeah. being made but still a still a long way to go and I think it's and probably that's where you see the gap because the the top yeah. end salaries the gap is so big um I've Absolutely seen it when I, when I worked in-house you know it's sort of middle management level it is quite standard um and hopefully as as these women progress through their careers that gap will close that that's the dream We've certainly seen a big um, increase in, in salaries generally across the payroll industry. Well, it's not specific necessarily to, to gender, but I, it's been nice to see, as, as, as Simon said earlier, the amount of work they put in during the pandemic has is now starting to be recognised um, with, with increases ranging as regionally from between 5% to up to over 15%. So um, really positive for the payroll industry as a whole there in terms of the recognition being reflected in new salaries being offered. So I think that's a real positive sea change from, from what we see. Uh, in the market. I realise we've got about a minute left. Is there anything else we need to mention here, Simon, in terms of how we prepare and submit these results? Uh, I think you may have covered it briefly already. but um... Yeah, I doubt there's very much I could say in the time left. Just some thoughts, though. Are we addressing the reason for it in the first place, which was to uh, elevate the lost women? I know it's an unusual term, isn't it? But the lost women were those that had left the workplace to become mothers or look after the elderly yeah. and be able to elevate them back to an equal level when they return. And I'm wondering, are the strategies there to deal with the lost women? Uh, well, I think, I think there's, just there thought, are probably there. workplace changes of certainly helping with it, with the ability to work from home now much more uh, accepted in the world of payroll in particular than it ever was before. Hopefully that will certainly help those uh, those mothers and people returning to work uh, who need to be at home for childcare reasons or whatever it might be. It gives them more accessibility. So I think that's a real positive sea change as well. So I'll take this huge opportunity to say thank you to our panel today, Rachel, Simon and Andy. The next payroll question time will be on the 8th of April. Please make sure you sign up for that. And thanks again for to the panel and for all of you for joining us today on payroll question time. Enjoy the rest of the sunshine if it's still shining. Thank you so much for tuning into the payroll podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.